0: This is my daughter, Eden, with me tonight. She is driving me on this tour. This is not my wife, that's why I tell you that. This is not my wife, Janet, but this is my daughter, Eden. But she um, very much would love to talk to you. Now, um, I don't talk about my cancer very much. I have not shunned. It's a very real adventure for me. I don't know what my responsibility is before the Lord to share some things. I do not want to confuse any of that with my call, which is to preach the gospel of Christ to the unsaved and Bible teaching for those who are saved, that they can grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. But if I can be a help in this world, then I want to be. But I will tell you that uh, more details than I will give you tonight uh, were posted On our website, in our quarterly newsletter, if you get that, I hope that you were able to see that already. But if you would like to receive updates like that, and our newsletter, Eden is going to be around this evening. If you just give her an email, we'll be glad to put you on the list, and you can get those updates. That's where you would find out more than any message that you see me preaching from behind a a podium, probably. I'd like to pray for our time together. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness. And we thank you for the grace that bought us. Lord, we are sinners. We have fallen short of your glory. We're not like you. Lord, we're not good enough for you. We thank you, Father, that though we are so unlovable sometimes that you've never stopped loving us. We thank you that tonight... That we are not on a performance basis to get your love. And we thank you, Lord, that there is a place for everybody. in the body of Christ, the family of God. We thank you, Lord God, that heaven is not full. That you've not stopped the redemption of sinners who will put their trust in Jesus. Father, if it could be there's someone in the sound of my voice. Now, I pray that they will seize the opportunity and rest their faith where it belonged all along in the saving accomplished by faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you'll bless our time together in the Word, that we can understand it better so we can be a help to someone else. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Amen. In 1971... President Richard Nixon went to the podium and in a State of the Union address, he announced the war on cancer. He had signed that week the Cancer Act. Even before the Vietnam War ended, if you know your history, there were calls for a cure for cancer to be found, and the president was convinced that that was a place that needed money, funding, funding. Research, advancements. Richard Nixon believed when he made that speech that we would have the answer to cancer within the next five years. It's been over 50 years, ladies and gentlemen, and we have no answer for cancer. My doctor looked me in the eyes and he said, there is no cure for what you have. The American Cancer Society estimates that almost 2 million cancer diagnoses will happen this year. Almost 2 million people. 600,000 people will die with cancer in the United States in a year. No answer. Church, I want to tell you my heart tonight we have to do better. We must do better. I want to give you encouragement tonight. I, won't, I don't want to fill you with statistics that might discourage. I just want to be very real with you. No one wants to hear that word, cancer. No one certainly, even among those who hear the word cancer, wants to hear the two words put together, brain tumor. And I've heard all these words. And I've been walking through the valley of cancer, and its whispers of death. On June 19th, last summer, I received the phone call that changed my life. My neurologist said those words to me in that call. He said, we're not going to call it a brain tumor, Freddie, But we'll call it a mass on your brain because we found that when we say brain tumor, people freak out. That's a quote on the phone call that I will never forget. On July 17th, I was scheduled for a craniotomy. They cut my head open that morning. I didn't know what was going to happen. There were papers to sign, releasing them from responsibilities and lawsuits. But I knew that before I wake, I could see Jesus and daddy. Ultimately, it's going to be okay. I am one of the Lord's. When I woke up from surgery, I knew that I'm moving very quickly somewhere. On my surgical bed, I was racing down the hallway and there must have been 10 or 12 people around me moving in a hurry somewhere. So I immediately knew, okay, I'm not in heaven. I've lived through brain surgery. There was one question that I I called out to them. I asked them, Is my doctor happy? Because to me, that's the only thing worth asking right now. Is my doctor happy? Because I knew if the neurosurgeon is happy, then everything went well. They assured me, Happy, happy. They rolled me into an ICU room where I think I spent three days. I went home a day earlier than we expected. They brought me my first meal about an hour after they locked my bed down in that recovery room. That plate was full of food that I no longer eat, absolutely full of it. I had already asked a couple of my doctors, do I need to change my diet? They assured me I didn't. One of them, in fact... Got angry with me for asking him that question and really condescended to me in a very disrespectful way and actually put his knees, uh, put his hands on his knees, and prepared to exit the room rather than answer my questions about food. I dropped him from my medical team several days later. I just think you owe people answers to their honest questions. But on that plate (laughs) was a lot of food that I just don't eat it anymore. And it featured a tall glass of sweet tea, which I've loved all my life. And then chocolate cake for dessert. When I went home, the ride home hurt more than the surgery did. It was brutal being in the car that vibrated or that bumped. And I had to get out and walk the last quarter mile. In fact, I couldn't make it the whole way. I sat down in the road. Little did I know. That by the power of God, I would preach in Texas. Less than three weeks later. we had some decisions still to make. We listened to what doctors told us would be next in our journey, and they offered me what's referred to as the standard of care. With my kind of brain cancer, the standard of care means three things. Number one, surgery, if it's operable, Number two is radiation. Number three is chemo, chemotherapy. Well, I had made it by God's grace and strength and power and a very good surgeon through a craniotomy where no one wants to be. But I was finished, I was recovering, I was home. I was walking every day, slowly, but every step I was a little stronger than the one before. And I began to get opinions, and I began to call on people even more to pray for me. And I began those walks along that same stretch of road that I couldn't make before. I began to walk it every day and pray with God. And I can tell you those those are priceless moments. I knew that God is my only hope. And if I ever live through this, it'll be because of my Heavenly Father. When there was no hope in the prognosis, when there was no hope in the research that I would read, when there was no hope in the pathology report that said heavy mitosis. I read one report that said this can double in size in seven days. Well, that's not sustainable, is it? I read all the reports about death rates and how short this can be. But I knew that my hope was God. So I asked the Lord every day in my life now to heal me. If he has it already. And I ask the Lord every day. To give me time here in the world to serve him. That I can be my wife's husband. I married a superhero you know. That I can be a father in this world. Until the rapture. That I can go up with the body of Christ or that the Lord will give me a long life here that I can serve him. I want to serve the Lord in this world. This fallen, broken place that is darker by the day. I want to be here and serve him. I have heaven to look forward to. Heaven is already in the bank because Jesus paid it all. Amen. I am going to heaven one day. I am going to be healed one day from cancer. One way or another, my healing waits for me. Is that good? Is that good? And so it's with this hope that that I've been walking in this valley of cancer with those whispers of death. Recently, I was talking to the Lord and I said, Lord, I've, I've learned so many things. Let's just end this cancer right now, but don't, don't let me forget the things I learned. There have been really awesome moments. The fact that I have drivers now that are my captive audience. They have to listen to all my stories now. And now I'm the one they have to stop at the bathroom for. It's wonderful knowing God, no matter the trial that we walk through. We had a decision to make about the standard of care. When they talk about aiming radiation into your brain, I hope that you'll have a list of questions for that. The last white-coated individual... Who spoke to me that I understood. I will not respect what you tell me as truth. Just because of the lab coat. Or how many years. Or how much money. If you're going to shoot radiation into the brain that God made. That's important to me. And so we came to the standard of care very slowly. I walked into the the chemo-oncology center and walked into a waiting room absolutely full of people who looked more dead than alive. Their skin tone was yellow. They were missing great amounts of hair. And my meeting with that oncologist, as we say, scared me to death. Absolutely no hope in his words. And I learned that Recently, he had buried his own father who died with cancer. So the word disappointment doesn't even describe what I feel when I read the report that we passed the Cancer Act over 50 years ago. And there has been very little movement in the progress against cancer officially. There has been some movement, but... It seems that most people attribute that to the rapid decline in smoking that we've had, but it doesn't balance the scales, even that. So we had some decisions to make, and we came very close to not doing the standard of care. I will explain this to you very briefly, because it's, it's such a harsh treatment. Radiation into the brain and a drug that makes you That makes you sick. You don't want to eat. Turns your skin, causes your hair to fall out. The treatments are so harsh. Well, I'm willing to do harsh. Let me tell you something that I've come to understand. If the Lord showed me that my way through cancer is that I eat rocks. If I make a diet of sticks, well, bring it on and I'll chow down. I would do anything that I was certain to do. But the standard of care, unfortunately, is so harsh on the body. And so I looked at the payoff. Okay, well, it's a done deal then. I, I do the harsh treatments and we're all set. Well, no, no. The results are abysmal. The effectiveness is pathetic of the treatments that 50 years of money and research have given us. There is no hope in any of that. In the end, through a lot of prayer, we decided that we're going to hit this with everything we got. And we decided that if God can take me through the valley of cancer, if God can deliver me from death and sin and take me to heaven, then God can deliver me through the standard of care treatments and leave me strong enough in the end to fight longer. That good? That good? That's the way we viewed it. If if God is a powerful God and we know he is... Then he can deliver me through the standard of care. And in that respect, we were correct. We're still fighting. Amen. We finished those treatments. I rang that bell and walked away from it all. I've been walking. I eat like a horse when the right food is in front of me. And I want to tell you some of the things... That I learned very practically. Number one, I learned that, to say it plainly, cancer cells feed on sugar. There were inklings of this already in my mind. I was was a pretty pitiful individual when I faced off with cancer. There was so much that I didn't know. I'm still learning about it. They're mysteries. But there was an inkling that that sugar feeds cancer. And I decided, well, if cancer wants sugar, well, then this is what I'm going to do. I am going to become the most inhospitable, rude jerk of a cancer patient to my cancer cells. I want them trying to hitchhike somewhere just to get away from me to find a more Decent place they could live. And so I cut sugar in a day. Sugar's gone. I did not want my belly. To be my God. There is no food. That tastes as good in my mouth. As serving the Lord in this world. With the people that I love. I Don't need any donuts. If I never have another soda. With it's ten spoons of sugar. We're good. We can go on with God. So I learned that even though I received a plate full of of things that turn into sugar once they get into the body that I could make it without that food. I mean I had been asking questions, is this okay? Can can I eat this? I couldn't believe it. And was assured, well sure. Food didn't cause this and food won't keep this going. Eat anything you want. And I didn't believe that in time. And I still don't. So, we made a decision that I would cut out sugar and anything that I knew of that turned into sugar once it went down my throat. That if, in fact, sugar feeds cancer, well, then we'll just live without that. And I can tell you, friend, life goes on without sugar. In fact, I want to ask you tonight, would you consider this, that my experience might have a payoff for you? Would you lay off the donuts, please? Now, I never argue with people about food. I believe that God has freed us to pray for it and eat it. God has changed our dietary uh, guidelines four times in Scripture. The last the Lord said was pray for it and eat it. But now, if we have knowledge that our longevity in this world could be impacted by what we eat, will we continue to eat the doughnuts and the cake and drink the sodas? If it could be that I'm shortening my days, I decided in my life, no, no, that would be to make food my God. And my belly is not going to answer the call for that. My belly will not rule my life. And so I cut it out and I stand before you to tell you tonight, I don't miss it at all. I don't need any of it. I want to live. So we cut sugar. We amended my diet. Another very encouraging thing that's developed in my time is there's a doctor. He's an evolutionist. He's a geneticist. He's made his living in the field of genes. And today, he's taking many microphones to speak out about what he's learned about cancer. And this is what Dr. Thomas Seyfried at Boston College is saying. We haven't cured cancer Because we don't understand the disease that we're trying to eliminate. He said, we have it all wrong. We're treating cancer as a genetic disease. It's not a genetic disease. To say it clearly, cancer cells did not become cancer because they had a meeting and decided to evolve into something bigger, stronger, and better. To be dominant cells through evolution. That's just not what it is. What happened was those cells got hurt. They were injured by something. Could have been something that a person ate. It could have been something they breathed. It could have been some chronic condition that they lived in that the body was never made to endure. But those cells were injured. And the impact of the injury was that those cells can no longer take oxygen in and convert that into energy. They no longer have that ability like they did when they were healthy. And so they must convert energy from something else. So rather than through oxidation, those cells begin to ferment. And the number one thing they find in the body that they can ferment into energy is glucose. This is something I can control. I don't know what genes are doing. I don't know anything about what may come through um, bloodlines, family lines. Can we inherit cancer from grandfather? I don't know anything about that, but I know you boil it down for me and tell me that cancer cells in my body are feeding on fermented sugar that I put on the buffet for them. Count me out for sugar, and so I made that move. And Dr. Seyfried has encouraged a lot of people through his research over the last 30 years, that you can control this. You can eliminate sugar and put yourself in a much better position with cancer. I want to tell you, too, the thing that I've learned is that there's a fervent search today for supplements. Because so many people are terrified by that C word, Cancer. And knowing that for 50 years we tried to find an answer, we poured money into it. We sent the brightest minds we could find into their labs to try and give us that answer that, that was practically promised in 1971. And people know there's not an answer. And people are fervently seeking for something that will help me. And in my view, they are finding some things. That it seems to me, it's a reasonable thought that there are actually some supplements that I can put into my body that might help in the fight for cancer. And these things encouraged me. But make no mistake, God is my hope, God's my healer, and God is my comforter. I want you to know, saved people have trouble. We have trouble. A lot of trouble comes. And I decided in the very beginning, I will never ask why. Now that's inevitably where we go to as as humans, in our frailty, in our flesh. We inevitably resort to asking why, or why me, or why God. And I decided, no, we're not going to ask why. And I want to explain this to you tonight. Maybe it'll be a help to you in your own life. Because, buddy, you and I both have trouble in this life. They told me, even though your surgery is over, you still need to refer to yourself as a brain cancer patient. Okay. I'm a brain cancer patient, but what do you have? We're in a fallen, broken world. Things are going on here under the curse that God didn't create for. But He's allowing us to take the inevitable path since our forebears chose to sin. And in my view, in my research, things are worse and worse and worse and worse. The soil, God told Adam, is going to be harder to work now. And you will eat your bread by the sweat of your brow That soil that was cursed way back then, hey, we're a long time later now. Thousands of years have rolled by and that soil is still not giving us what it did in the Garden of God's Delight. Our food is different. And what the inevitable decline under the fall of man didn't do, chemicals have done for us. And I've looked into this, I've watched this food matters and if there's sugar in it i don't need it if something in it will turn to sugar i don't need that either and if there are chemicals in the ingredients label required by law that i can't pronounce if i can't pronounce the name of the chemical i probably don't need to swallow it into my belly that's my rule i don't want to fill my body with chemicals i don't know what that does So we eliminated some foods. And I decided never ask why. That is folly. I'm saying this very clearly to you tonight. It's folly to ask why. Because in doing so, we are asking for the unknowable. And that's wasted effort. To ask why is to ask for what's unknowable. And that's a waste of effort. Or if it's a prayer, that's a wasted prayer. Asking why is wasting precious resources on what's past. Knowing why can't change a thing about the fact that I have been in the valley of cancer. I, I can't change what happened to me by asking why. Or even knowing why. Can I tell you tonight a better thing? And I, I want to encourage you to train your mind to think in the right channels. And I know the common channel is ask why. A better way of thinking Is don't ask why. Ask this friend. When? What's important now? Are you seeing this in your mind? I'm trying to get you to write that in your Bible. When? What's important now? It's not important for me to know. Why did I get cancer? It's not important to me. God, why are you doing this to me? It's not important. It's done. That's a historical event by now. Forget asking why. A better question is, what's important now, Father? What do I need to be doing right now? So I have cancer. This has happened to me. What's important now as we go forward? Listen, the Bible says very clearly... Where there is no vision. What happens to the people? They perish. I'm not signing up to perish. I want to sign up to live. And vision is important to life. Your church has vision. Your pastor has vision. You should ask him about that. You should ask him. Pastor what's your vision for our church? And follow it with this one. Pastor what can I do? To help you realize that vision. Do I have a part? Can I do something? Because where there's no vision, the people perish. I wanted vision in my life, and I can tell you at no time in my life have I had more vision than I do right now. And if the Lord will grant me the time and the people around me I'm looking so forward to seeing some of those visions become realities. I would appreciate your prayers for that. And I want to pray for you that you will stop asking why and start asking what's important. Um, I wanted you to say it now. Not back there. That's not important now. My now starts here, this moment, and goes forward. And so what's important? No matter what's happened to me, let's go forward. Would you take your Bible and meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I think the why gets asked by a lot of believers in Jesus. And that's unfortunate. I think our training probably could be better. That we could be more biblical in our approach to suffering, trial, sickness, disease, and just in general, bad times in a fallen world. I think our approach is lacking in all those areas that we frame these issues of life around truth that God has given to us. And so I want to look at the Apostle Paul in his life. He was very honest about trouble in his life. I'd like for you to go right to verse 8. We'll, we'll come right back to it. But let me begin here. He says in this great letter to the Corinthian believers. For we would not brethren have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. That we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. Wow, he didn't hold a thing back, did he? So much for the way that we routinely lie every day of our lives when someone asks that question. How you doing? What do we say? Liar, liar, pants on fire. I've stopped myself several times throughout this valley from answering, fine. And I will say, let me tell you the truth. They tell me I should tell you that I'm a brain cancer patient. Physically, I'm not doing fine. But God is good. And we're praying for a healing for me. That's a more honest answer. There's Paul saying, we've had it rough. And I don't want you to be... There's something that we're actually struggling with something. that Somehow that makes us less valuable or less of a man or less of a person. To admit that we're struggling with something, let me tell you, we need to be honest together. If we don't hang together in our trouble, we'll hang separately in our trouble. And that's no fun at all. So Paul is honest. Maybe these people will pray. And that's why I told you earlier, I've not made a business out of telling people about my valley. But I haven't shunned it either. I think honesty is good. I think openness is commendable. We need to talk. And I have enjoyed talking with your pastor. In those moments as he was a kind of pastor to me. As I walked along together and could share with him what I'm going through. And the things that I feel are my needs. It's so good. So Paul is giving a shout out. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about our trouble in Asia. You know what his trouble was in Asia? The believers turned their backs on him. And then put it right into his back. And twisted it over theology. And he said, hey, I want you to know. When we were in Asia and they turned their backs on me. And they hurt me. That I despaired even of life. Now, there are... Some people who do this for a living who probably would declare him suicidal in that moment. That's not suicidal. That's called honesty. To say I despair of life doesn't mean I just want to end my life. Those, are, those don't equate. That's not the same statement. He was tired of living in what he was in. And he needed relief from it from God. And yet he sought God not to end his own life. Is that good? Is that good? Verse 8. Here's an acknowledgement. We have trouble in this fallen world. And I will do a lot better in dealing with trouble in my life. Even if it's the C word. If first of all I'm honest with it. And then second of all if I can talk to my brothers. My sisters. My family. If I can call them into my world. If I can ask them to pray for me. What on earth would I have done without my family? What on earth would I have done without the family of God? That has rushed to my rescue in my valley of cancer. Now let's get the context of verse number 8. Would you look with me? Verse number 3. Paul said, blessed be God. How about that? A man who is about to tell you, I'm in so much trouble, I'm despairing of life. Begins this context by telling us, blessed be God. Is that good? Sounds like he's been singing a song called, God's been good. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? Mercies. The Father of mercies. And the God of all what? Comfort. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them. Would you put your finger... On the word that in verse 4. That word that links two things together. He says, who comforted us in all our tribulation. That, now he could have, or the translators could have translated that out. So that, okay? So that, in other words, there's a cause and an effect here. The cause is that God has... Comforted us, the effect of it on us is that now we can be a comfort to others. That we can extend the comfort of God to other people. This is why I'm so certain that God's people go through hurt and pain. This is why I'm so certain that there are godly pastors tonight whose own people are turning on them. I will tell you, preacher... Your hurt will probably be caused by saved people. Your help will certainly come from the Lord. So put your eyes on the right one for help. Don't ask why when it happens. Don't ask why. Does it even matter? Mm -mm, That's history. What's important now as we go forward with God? That's what Paul's doing. And Paul says, look, this comfort that I got from God, I'm using it for you. To give you comfort. Because surely you will have pain in your life too. Is that good? Is that good? Do you see the principle? This preaches. I got hurt so God could comfort me. So that I can be a comfort to others around me. I can comfort them. Middle of verse 4. Which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comfort of God. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us... So our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. What did he say? Well, when we suffer in this world, we identify with Jesus. Because he suffered in this world too. And whenever we're identifying with Jesus in our hurt, then we get the privilege to identify with Jesus in our healing. That good? That good? I'm going for more than that. You're not giving me much tonight now. And whether we be afflicted, verse 6, it is for your consolation and salvation. Which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted. It is for your consolation and salvation. What did he say? When Paul the Apostle was hurt. Paul is asking what's important now? People around me. Because God's going to take care of me. And maybe then I can take what I get from God. And give it away to the other people. That's what's important to me. Rather than groveling in my own pain. I'm going to set my eyes on people around me because somebody needs some help. And now that I've been where they are, I could offer help straight from God for me. Verse 7, and our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. What's he saying? It worked in my life. I was hurt. I had pain. I was in so much trouble, I despaired of life. And God delivered me from it. Therefore perhaps I can help you. To be delivered by God. As well. That's what we call ministry. Amen. We get something from God. And pass that on. To someone else. And this is what our suffering. Is all about. Look with me at verse number 9 now. After saying that we despaired even of life. And all that trouble in Asia. Paul caps it. With verse 9. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves. But in God which raiseth the dead. Isn't that good? That good? God raises the dead. And that sentence is true. That God raiseth the dead. On so many levels and in so many ways. Jesus has been there. Jesus faced it. Jesus called Lazarus out of the dead. Jesus rose himself bodily from the dead. I am dead in my sins at birth, but God made me alive in Jesus Christ. Is that good? Whatever trouble I'm in, I'm going to be delivered from it. Freddie, how can you say that? Well, I speak in the ultimate sense. There is no death in this world. That's going to beat those whose faith is in Christ. We have our deliverance. Paul got his deliverance in Asia. I'll have mine. You will have yours as well. That's the hope we have. You you look into my, my world of cancer and listen to the doctors. By the way, there are good doctors. There are godly doctors. There are, of course, the other kind as well. But we don't get our hope from doctors. We get our hope from God. There are no answers that we want to hear. But our hope is in God who raises the dead. Would you leave 2 Corinthians now and turn back to the left to Romans and chapter 8. And we find Paul the Apostle being honest again. Romans chapter 8 now. And verse number 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. There it is. There's Paul's honesty as he looks around and he knows that not only he, Paul, is in pain, but the whole world. Listen, this even includes the saved in the world. We all have pain. We trace it right back to the fall. Our pain began. Our death began. Our lives as we know them began at the fall. When man chose sin over what he had with God. And so Paul says we're all groaning. We're all travailing in pain. The idea is that someone has been knocked down there on the ground. They are struggling they're writhing in pain. And the whole creation is that way. 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Now, this is a holy groan. This is a holy groan. This is not asking why. Blaming God. Waving an angry fist toward heaven. Blaming God for our trouble. No, no. If we're going to start the blame game, point that finger right at your own heart, Buster. We're responsible for pain in the world because of our sin. We can expect nothing more because didn't God promise Adam? For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So he says, everybody's groaning. We're all, even the saved, groaning, waiting for the adoption. To wit, that is, I want you to have this wisdom the redemption of our body. He said, We're all groaning, even the saved are groaning. We're all travailing in pain under the curse, but we're looking forward. We're groaning for it. We want it so badly. Our redemption. The adoption. That's when we bodily are with the Lord. And placed as sons in the family of God. I'm longing for it. I wait for it. He says, for we are saved by hope. Verse 24. Now... There are some who try and somehow flex that verse into a gospel verse, a verse to be used to lead someone to eternal life, but that that's far too much twisting. The saving in verse 24 is in the context the groanings and trouble we all have. He's saying you can be saved from your trouble. You can be saved from what you're going through in the temporary through hope. Hope is not grace. Hope is not faith. Hope is the certainty of knowing what's true. So what I'm telling you tonight is don't ask why. Don't don't ask God for the unknowable. Ask a better question. What's important now, God? And, and set your mind to think on the facts that God has already given. And those facts we're teaching tonight. I got a healing. Sure, the pain hurts, but I'll be delivered. Because my hope is in God and He's the one who raises from the dead. Is that good? Is that good? Is that good? Can that see us through? You better believe it'll see us through. That's what our eyes can see. We have to keep the facts straight when we are in trouble in this world. Keep the facts straight. Know what we know that we got from God. And it'll not only help us, but then we can give it to others as well. That's how we're saved by hope in this life. Now, we've already been saved from sins into eternal life. But we get through this trouble by placing our hope in God. But hope that is seen is not hope; for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? So we're waiting for this adoption. Simply said, we're looking for the rapture. Would you join me in First Thessalonians in chapter four? The whole body of Christ should have one eye on the sky all hours of the day and night. We ought to put up watches looking for the sky to crack because, buddy, it's coming one day. And the way things are going in this world, I just think that in all reality, we got to have some relief. I just don't think this old world can run much farther away from God before the church age ends. I think our ministry time here is shorter by the day. I think if you have vision and you're going to try and reach people and train people, better get that vision moving forward in a hurry. Because we wait and we groan for the rapture of the church. This church age is going to end and the event that ends it is called the rapture. A quick look at the rapture now in First Thessalonians in chapter 4 and verse 16. Here we go. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, because we know God raises the dead. Amen. Now the dead in Christ would, would include my daddy. We put my body, uh, my daddy's body in the grave. God's going to take it out. <laughs> Woo! Daddy's coming out of the grave on the day of the rapture. This is the greatest day of my life. Because I see daddy and Jesus within moments of one another. What could be any better than that? You can have your donuts. I'm going to see daddy and Jesus on the day of the rapture. Is that good? Is that good? That's what we're groaning for. It's what we're waiting for. It's what we're looking for. And that'll help get us through our momentary afflictions in this life. If we know there's an end to this, buddy. I'm coming out of this trouble. And my ticket out of here is the rapture of the church by Jesus Christ. I'm fired up about that rapture, greatest day of my life when it gets here. Says verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Who is them? Those who were dead in Christ. They're believers too, but they physically died. We haven't yet. Have you noted yet in this context that Paul the Apostle thinks he's in one of those groups and not the other one? Paul says, then we which are alive and remain. Paul thought the rapture was going to be in his lifetime. And that's obvious if you look at the text here. Then we which are alive and remain. Paul thought he was going to be alive and remain on the earth on the day of the rapture when the trumpet blows. Now Paul was wrong about that. But buddy, you can't touch his hope, can you? He's living in hope, not in his despair. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 18 says, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. That's why we need to tell one another about our trouble. So we can tell each other, hey, your trouble's over when the rapture happened. Man, when that trumpet blows, cancer's toast. Is that good? Is that good? That rapture kicks off a chain of events already ordained by God. That will take the believer into the eternal state of the saved. Where the book of Revelation promises us that that place in the presence of God will have no darkness, no devil, no sickness, no parting forever. Where the hallelujahs never end. <laughs> Amen. I'm going there. My faith is solid. Jesus is my way, my truth, my life. Jesus is my ticket out of sin. And Jesus is my way through the valley of cancer. One day I will leave its whispers of death behind. And I will embrace my future where the lights never go dark. Friend, I can tell you that whatever you're going through tonight, whatever is pressing your heart... This moment of your life, whether you're honest about it with another human or not, you know. And I can tell you God is bigger than your problems. God knows the other end of it as he knew the beginning of it. There is reason in it and there is the purpose of God working. For those who love the Lord, who ask what's important now. Oh, you'll have your answers, and you'll have your healing. You'll have your deliverance, and you'll have your place in the eternal home, the eternal abode of the saved. It's all a package deal, and the next thing on God's calendar is that rapture event that will take all the believers out of the world. And if you're on that train, you ought to just start the hallelujahs right now. Friend, if tomorrow you got the phone call and they told you it's cancer. I know there would be a momentary absolute flattening of your soul to hear that word. But would you rest your hope momentarily in God? Would you realize that God has given you truth He's already laid out the facts that are true and are eternally true about the cancer that could be in your body. Would you be able to put your hope in God and leave it right there without asking why, without ever an angry fist towards God? Without ever wasteful questions about why this is happening? Could you just say, God, what's important now? You and I are going forward and you'll get me through. Amen. And friend, if you don't have the hope of heaven, that means the certainty of heaven. Then let me help you with that, if I may. You and I don't deserve heaven. We're not good enough for heaven. If spending a night in heaven only cost a dime, we couldn't afford it. Because a dime times eternity is infinite. And we don't have the dime for the first night because we're spiritually bankrupt and broke in the eyes of God. And if we'll be honest, the Bible says that all our righteousness is ours, filthy rags to God. We just are not going in. I wouldn't trust the best two seconds of my life and say, God, here, I think I did pretty well here. These two seconds, God, that's my best. I want you to judge me on that two seconds and see if I'm good enough for heaven. I, wouldn't, I would not take that for a million dollars. I wouldn't have a chance on my best go for two seconds. I'd find a way to mess up two seconds. Friend, you and I are in the same boat. And I just want to help you if you've cast your anchor... Into the bottom of your own boat. And you're looking into your own soul. You're looking into your own ability. You're looking at your own righteousness to float you to heaven. You put your anchor in the wrong place. Throw your anchor in the waters. Let it fall through the waters of doubt and disillusionment. Let it go all the way to the rock hard bottom of the ocean. That's the rock of Jesus Christ. Let your anchor take hold of the rock of Jesus, friend. You believe in him. Here's what he did for you. He knew about your sin. He loved you anyway. He knew the wages of your sin was death. So he came to earth and took your sin and paid a death penalty. They killed him on the cross. It was bloody. It was horrid. It was awful. For six hours, he was on that splintery cross under a sky that went dark because the sun he made wouldn't shine on its maker's death. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died, For man the creature's sin. He did that for you. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. That you would have access into his holy heaven forever. But friend you got to believe in him now. You got to stop believing in you. You got to stop having no faith. You got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you to do better tonight. That's not your way. I'm not telling you to turn from all your sins. That's impossible. From where would that strength come? But the Bible says that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, for God sent not His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Hey, if the world might be saved, how about you? Why not you? Would you trust in Jesus if never before? It means that you rely on Him. It means that you face the truth that He died for you. That He paid your sin. That He removed it all. That He rose from the dead and now He swings the gate of heaven wide open. For any little sheep who will trust in the shepherd. It will be everlasting life for you. A spot at the table where the family of God will eat together forever. No darkness, no devil, no disease, no more goodbyes where the hallelujahs never end. And you'll be with the rest of us. Will you trust in Christ this moment? And friend in the building, would you bow your heads? And we'll give a moment that, that someone right now might trust in Jesus for their eternal life and receive a gift from God. If you're a saved person and not sure what God has done in your life... As we've been in the Word together, would you tell God right now whatever you should? Would you just speak that to the Lord? And I'd like to pray for you. Father, we can trust in this thing that we will have trouble in this fallen world. Lord, the truth is we're not above that. We're not too good for that. Lord, not one of us has attained a place that we could say, I don't deserve cancer. And Father, I pray that when the inevitable trouble comes to us in this world, Lord, we rest our hope in you as our healer and our comforter. And I pray, Lord, we'll take what you give us in our trouble and we'll freely pass it to others who are in their trouble. We pray, Lord, that you will extend the ministry of the gospel from this church, Father, that they will ever be students and lovers of the scriptures and take their place and ask what's important now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and that you bless this church. Amen.